looking back, it's, it seems to have started about eight or nine years ago. And after four years of work, there was, uh, there was a draft of part 101. Uh, there was even a draft of part 102, uh, but there was no consensus. I, I think people decided it was, it was too difficult. We, we'll just stop on this um, and maybe we'll just have to carry on as we are. But the end users, so back to our highways engineers, and particularly people at TFL at the time, said, no, you have got to sort it. Bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on standards and pavements. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with... Cindy Parakil. Cindy, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Matthew. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. Back in episode 24 of the podcast, still available on the feed, we looked at standards and potholes and the standard BS10947 for spray injection patching. Now, today's episode is on a similar theme. We move from potholes to pavements and the standard BS7533-101, pavements constructed with clay, concrete or natural stone, which is being published this month, the first in a series of standards in this area. I don't know about you, Cindy, but when I hear potholes to pavements, my mind jumps immediately to Heaven 17's 1981 debut album, Penthouse and Pavement. You? Nope. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) One for all you new romantics out there instead. Now, it's it's worth saying that the potholes episode wasn't really just about the potholes. It was about how new technologies, in that case, spray injection patching, can be incorporated into standards. And in a similar way, this episode isn't really just about pavements either. It's more about the patience, perseverance and the power of consensus in standards making. Now, to help us take this little walk on the wilder side of standards making, we speak to Richard Scrivener and Tim Yates, two of the standards makers involved in the development of BS7533-101. You heard a snippet of Tim at the top of the episode, talking about how the influence of the end users of the standard have been instrumental in restarting the standards making process that at that stage had completely stalled. We should also thank BSI's Gavin Jones, too, for his help in developing this episode. Matthew, I think at this point we should also probably explain what we mean by pavements here. Now, this is from the Institution of Civil Engineering. In everyday English, pavements mean the footpath at the side of a road. In engineering terms, a pavement means a man-made surface on natural ground that people, vehicles or animals can cross. So any ground surface prepared for transport counts as pavement. A pavement is a sequence or a set of layers of materials placed on the natural ground. Pavement engineering is a branch of civil engineering. It involves knowledge of soils, hydraulics and other materials and how these materials react to load or weight. And a road then? A road is a type of pavement. Okay, and what we think of pavements are what? That's a footway. Not a footpath? Let's not go there. (laughs) Good point. We should probably just walk on. Now, (laughs) also in this episode, we have the Standards Desk of News and the latest of our My Favourite Standard. This time we hear from BSI's Sadie Dainton talking about why ISO 26000 for social responsibility is important to her. But before we get going proper... A reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSI EdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Do you want to know more about the role and purpose of standards in the modern world? Then BSI's free online course, The Power of Standards, is for you. 
Through its three modules, you'll learn about what standards are, why organizations use them, how they are made, and how and why people get involved in standards making. The course is designed to last around 30 minutes, but you don't need to complete it all at once. You can stop at any point and restart again later when you're ready. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. So we start our story of pavements, patience, perseverance and the power of consensus with Richard Scrivener. Richard is a senior engineer with the design and engineering firm Arup and is currently working on a range of transport and development projects throughout the UK. He is also a standards maker, being a member of BSI committee B507 on paving units and curbs. I spoke to Richard about what the standard BS7533-101 is all about, the role he played in its development and what difference he thinks it will make for engineers. He also sets us straight about the engineering definitions of roads, pavements and footways. But I started by asking him about his standards journey. Yeah, well, I guess the first time I was introduced to British standards will have been back at university. I was studying civil engineering um, and we were given British standards to, to aid in our structural and um, geotechnical designs at the time. Um, and they were very different to sort of textbooks we've been familiar with um, as students back in um, primary school and secondary school. They were very procedural, um, very different in their in their style. And at that point, I probably viewed them as some sort of sort of sacred term, which had some innate truth to them, which um, sort of just had to be followed. And it was like, this is this is engineering. Um, a lot of them were quite quite thick. Um, and for the purposes of our studies, we'd often take little snippets out and, and use what we needed to know. Um, it wasn't until I graduated that I began to use British standards more um, in the fields of highway and drainage engineering used a lot more documents and read the documents more thoroughly. Um, and then I found that it, um, they aren't static documents. They are evolving documents. They're not perfect. They, some, they're sometimes very old. They don't always reflect current technologies. Um, so they, they develop over time. And as I, as I used the documents, I had these little discoveries um, of, of bits, which gaps that I found within the standards. Um, and that led to discussions with with colleagues and suppliers, uh, landscape architects, and other designers, um, until I found myself discussing them with with people who form part of the groups that wrote the standards. Um, and lo and behold, I discovered that they weren't sort of sacred terms handed down um, for, from boffins at the top level. They were they were written by by people like me who work in the industry um and and have other jobs it, it's not a full-time profession to write standards for for the people who wrote them um so i began to get more and more involved in in discussions about how they're written uh, and that led me to to ultimately become involved in in writing british standards uh, they're not written by by the british standard institutions themselves but by people uh, who sit on committees working within the profession it's often described that uh, BSI holds the pen uh, and then obviously the, the standards are developed uh, by, by, by stakeholders, although pen seems an old-fashioned term now. Now, I want to come back to uh, your role as a standards maker in, in a moment, but tell us, you know, what is this particular standard all about and why is it important? Yeah, so BS7533, um, which is the standard I've been involved in developing for the last number of years. It, it's all about modular pavements. And by pavement, as a highway engineer, we don't mean the bit at the side of the road that you walk on. We refer to that as a footway. A pavement includes any engineered structure that takes traffic. So that can be um, pedestrian foot traffic or vehicular traffic. Um, and by modular, we mean simply not continuous, like asphalt um, or, or concrete pavements, um, but it's made up of discrete elements which collectively come together um, to form a durable and, and often less aesthetically pleasing surface for, for foot traffic or vehicular traffic. Most modular pavements have existed in, in some form since back to about 4000 BC. Um, the earliest sort of footpaths that were used um, just to make a more durable surface to walk on, an aesthetic surface. 
Um, and many of the engineered roads first built in the UK by the Romans were all of modular construction as well. The main reason for this, aside from the fact that we didn't have the, the modern day materials and technologies, was that it's a lot easier to, to transport and assemble small pieces together on site to form a, a coherent structure rather than trying to build a single sort of monolithic length of road. So modular pavements is, is, is a, a subset of, of pavement engineering and BSM 533 is the, the general sort of authority on, on how to design them and how to build them. Nowadays, you'll, you'll struggle to venture into any urban area without coming across modular paving, be that concrete flags or stone flab slabs on a footway, concrete blocks or stone sets in a pedestrianised street, or just concrete kerbs at the edge of a road, which are also covered under BSM 5533. So it's a standard that it permeates through pretty much every aspect of the urban environment. So you can imagine it's quite important that we, that we get this right uh, and that we design pavements and, and curbing in a way that's going to be safe, um, durable and sustainable. So as a non-engineer then, Richard, just so I've got this straight, we've got roads, pavements and footways. And what we're talking about here is this is a standard uh, for sort of pedestrianised roads. Would that be right? Um, partly right. I'd say the, the, the road and the footpath or the footway. So footway is the, the bit at the side of the road that you walk on. The road is the bit that vehicles drive on. The, the pavement is is the bit beneath, effectively, the, the build-up of materials which form the durable surface on which you either walk on or you drive on. So modular pavement, um, it's modular in construction, but the pavement can be, it can be under a footway, it can be under the road, or it could even be a garden path or a patio. Anything that you walk or drive on that's made of, of small elements of concrete, stone or clay. Okay, so back to your to, to the to the standard itself. Then I'm interested as a you as an engineer uh, and and working as a standards maker. What role did you play, and and who else was involved in terms of developing the standard? Yeah, so I'll take you back to where where I first got involved, which was the standard. As I say, it permeates through all of the built environment. Being a highway engineer, um, I inevitably used it on most of the projects I worked on. Uh, after graduating from from highway schemes to commercial developments and and small scale developments, and in 20, 2015, 2016, I was given the opportunity to to lead the civil engineering design for a twenty five million pound redevelopment of of the city of Hull, which is my hometown, uh, as part of the build up to the the city of culture, which Hull hosted in in twenty seventeen. So that project was it was refurbishment of of the city centre and. It involved pretty much all of the possible variants of paving that you can ever think of. So concrete flags, stone slabs, um, blocks, sets and clay pavers, which are all the different sizes and variants of, of the materials that are covered by the standards, as well as curbing uh, and even reclaimed cobbles, which are a subset of, of stone paving. Um, even had a couple of water features paved with modular paving. So it, it was a really good chance to sort of thoroughly investigate the standards and and use all the different bits of them and then put it into practice on a, on a major project to draw out, um, I guess, some of the inconsistencies and the shortcomings, the standards. They didn't cover all of the eventualities and all of the materials. And the traffic loading is, is only a, a limited subset of what's possible. The biggest gripe I found using 7533 in its, its previous form was that there were simply too many documents to, to get a handle with um, as a design engineer. The, the former suite of 7533 documents is split into 12 parts. Six of them covered design, five of them covered construction and materials, and there was one covering maintenance. So it, it was quite unwieldy to use as a designer, and you'd often find when you're looking at two very similar materials, you would end up with very different designs for the, for the pavement. It was these discussions that led me um, to ultimately join British Standards Committee B507 after discussing the, the standards with, with people on the committee. And upon joining the committee, I discovered that I was already familiar with many of the, the bodies represented on the committee. So each person on the com committee represents uh, a professional association. Um, so there's Interpave, the Precast Concrete Paving Trade Association, the Stone Federation that represents stone um, paving manufacturers, um, and professional institutions such as the Institution of at the Institute of Civil Engineers, 
which I'm also a member of. So I joined as a member uh, and representative of the Chartered Institution of Highways and Transport, the CIHT, which I'm also a member of. And I really sought to try and bring a designer's perspective to the committee, which at the time included a lot of representatives of, of suppliers and, and manufacturers, but not too many people like me, I guess, who use them day in, day, day out and, and find all the sort of nuances and, um, and sort of creeps in the in the standards, which, which we'd like to sort of resolve in the future issues. Now, you mentioned there, um, Richard, the BSI Committee B507, which covers, amongst other standards, this particular one we're talking about today, BS7533. Now, we love having standards makers uh, on the podcast because we always like to sort of, we want to get an insight into the sort of conversations and debates that take place within standards making. So take us inside some of the conversations and debates and challenges for this particular standard. The biggest challenge for me in the development of 7533101 was to try and bring together several standards from the previous suite into a single, concise, consistent, and, and coherent document that, as a designer, I could quickly pick up, refer to, find the bits that I, I needed to use to, to produce a design, and know that I've got the right answer. So from a designer's perspective, <clears throat> firstly, I could see no reason why blocks, sets, and, and clay pavers, which are the sort of small elements of paving, which all act predominantly in, in compression, couldn't be designed as a single design method. And why concrete flags and slabs, which are the sort of larger paving units, large and thin, which generally fail by bending and cracking, why they couldn't be designed into a single approach as well. So I, I saw the materials that were being used effectively as sort of elements of, of of matter that acted in the same way and therefore could be designed the same way. So how about your your sort of primary focus then, you know, your your primary contribution to the work of the committee on this standard? My primary focus was to to gather all of the documents that were previously circulating and, and pull them together into a single, um, concise, coherent document that I could pick up as a designer and use quickly on a project to get the answer that I was looking for. Um, however, when I joined the committee as a drafting panel member, member, it was clear that the working draft that was being worked on was more of a concatenation of the documents than a combination of the previous five standards. And I knew that was some issues to resolve when I did a quick word count on the on the working draft and found that the new standard was was longer than all of the previous standards combined. So as a designer, I wanted to really make sure that we could condense it down to be as concise as it could be so that people like me could could quickly get to the information they need and still read through the information that that is useful but isn't necessarily referred to every time you do a design. From a designer, I looked at the the sections that were in there and there was lots of repetition for the different materials. And as a designer, I couldn't see a reason why uh, elements of of concrete, clay and stone, which were the same size, couldn't be effectively designed using the same design methods. Um, Small elements generally act in compression, whereas the larger ones tend to bend more, which causes them to crack. But ultimately, they're they're units of, of matter, which I thought could act in the same way. Now that turned out to be a bit of an oversimplification. Um, and I'll be the first to admit that my own knowledge uh, of the properties of stone and concrete have, have developed since joining the committee. So that was that was a good exercise for me. Um, but for example, concrete is manufactured under controlled factory conditions, whereas stone is subject to, to natural variations, such as, as bedding planes. Um, concrete has a fairly rough finished surface, whereas salt and stone units can be relatively smooth which affects the the frictional interlock between the units. And even different types of stone from from different geologies, so your metamorphic, your igneous, your sedimentary, can have pretty significant variations in the water absorption rates and the skid resistance. So there does need to be some variation in the methods. So my focus was therefore to look at all of these different factions of concrete, clay and stone, try to pick out the common ground between them and the similarities in order to bring the size of the standard down to something that'd be more agile to use as a designer, but still encompassed all of the variations between the materials and made sure that we didn't oversimplify too much to the point where we were either over-conservative or we started to miss possible design scenarios out. Richard, I'll ask you in in a second about the the sort of difference you think the standard will will make to you and other engineers in your industry. But just picking up there on what you said about the learning experience for you. So how... How did you find that as a as an engineer, a, a chartered engineer, 
a huge amount of experience bringing your expertise to the conversation. Uh, you had you, you obviously took away some learnings as well. So, what was it like having to debate uh, and discuss with other engineers coming at things with a different perspective? Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I guess surprised me, but pleased me on on joining the panel. You you're sat in a room with with all these people with with vast experience, but all all representing different interests and, and different fields. So as I said, I was coming from a design perspective as a designer from a design consultancy where I use the standards, but there were different people representing um, trade bodies for manufacturers. So the people who make the units who are you know, very clued up on, on the stone or the concrete or, or mortars, which use as a bedding material. Um, there's landscape architects on there. Um, and all of these people come together with their different views and different takes on the standard. They all use the standard in different ways, um, and they're all interested in different parts of the standard. So it really does give you a an increased knowledge of, and I guess a an empathy for the the way people see the standards. You know, as a designer, I'm only interested in in certain aspects to get my design done to get the projects delivered. Um, but small properties of materials which were in the standard were some of the, um, I guess, the most contentious issues that were debated, which for me as a designer, uh, as long as the, the mortar or the stone meets the specification requirements, then I'm happy uh, as to where those requirements come from as, as a designer. Um, as long as you've got confidence in the standard, you don't really need to um, consider them too much. But there were members on the panel, which obviously have a very keen interest because it's it's what they do. They make these materials, uh, and they know them in you know inside out. So they were very focused on on particular areas, which has a big influence on the standard. Um, but they were less um, less concerned with other areas, such as, for example, foundation design, where you know the manufacturer of a stone paving unit doesn't necessarily need to know or get involved in that side of design. But as a as a highway engineer, I'm very interest in the foundation because it makes sure that our pavement is is durable and is going to last the the intended life so it really does give you that that perspective of of all the different people coming into design a standard uh, and, and it greatly increases your knowledge um, not only of the standard development process but the different aspects of engineering yes and i suppose ultimately that the, the power of this all those different perspectives coming together and creating that consensus is that you produce a better standard at the end of the day which i think obviously is really really important now we we talk in the standards world about standards providing solutions to problems so i wonder firstly um what difference will the standard make to you as an engineer and and other engineers in your industry the new version of 7533101 which covers all of the design elements from the previous design suites gives greater confidence in the design and specification of, of modular pavements for a greater range of materials and a wider spectrum of traffic loading. It makes it easier for the designer to design a pavement if they know that what they want to design is covered under the standard and there aren't any areas for ambiguity where they have to make an engineering judgment. This British standard is a best practice document, so it's it's a guide to designing pavements the new standard covers slightly higher traffic loading than previous and goes right down to the domestic patio situations. So it's it's got a great a range of, of design possibilities and it also minimizes the gaps and inconsistencies that previously occurred between paving units and where there were different dimensional limits. So between a concrete flag and a concrete block, for example, there's always been this bit of, bit of a gray area. So we've tried to reduce as much as possible any inconsistencies or ambiguity that can come throughout that. And ultimately that should mean that we've got more efficient and safer designs um, and we don't have to build in conservatism um, where we think there might be an area that falls outside of the standard. Are you a postgraduate studying at a UK university? Do you have a research idea or project that involves standards in some way? Well, if so, BSI Student Research Program can help. The way it works is simple. We gain valuable information about an area of interest to our standards work, while you can benefit from mentorship to support your project and the chance to gain knowledge and exposure that may increase your future employability. To find out more about the program, including case studies of previously supported projects and how to apply, visit bsigroup.com 
forward slash education. Cindy, it's that time in the episode. Shall we have the standards desk of news? Yep, let's do it. Fitness test for health apps. From COVID-19 to counting calories, there are hundreds of thousands of health and wellness apps on the market. However, many have access to highly sensitive personal information, whilst others may offer advice that is not always supported by scientific evidence. In order to evaluate the quality and reliability of such apps effectively, a new technical specification has been published. ISO TS 82304-2 brings together guidelines and requirements for apps by many local and national health organisations around the world to ensure they are safe, reliable and effective. May the 4th be with you. In the UK, the National Quality Infrastructure Partners, BSI, the National Physical Laboratory and the UK Accreditation Service with the UK government has recently published the action plan Standards for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, designed to unlock the value of standards for innovation and technological change. The plan's six actions include accelerating the digitalization of standards to foster the industries of the future and embedding the consideration of standards in the public policy-making process. Finally, the nominations are... Nominations are open for the 2021 BSI Standards Awards, the annual celebration of standards. There are two different types of awards, one for standards makers and one for standards users, with a number of different categories for each, including for education which is for universities who successfully integrated standards into their degree programmes. To find out more about the awards and how to make a nomination, go to bsigroup.com forward slash standards awards. And that's the Standards Desk of News. My favourite standard. Hi, my name's Sadie Dainton, Consumer Policy Manager at BSI. Now, because I've spent a long and very enjoyable time in the world of standards, I've really found it quite hard to pick a favourite. I could have chosen secondhand goods, as that was a project started between consumer organisations and their Caribbean countries. Or maybe energy service to users, because that was the first standard initiated by Consumers International. But really, I think it has to be ISO 26000, Social Responsibility. This is a standard for organisations committed to operating in a socially responsible way. It provides guidance to those who recognise that respect for society and the environment is a critical success factor. Now, one of the reasons I've chosen it is because it took a really, really long time to get published. It first emerged as a concept from the Capulco workshop back in 2001, and it was actually only published in 2010. And that included five years of global negotiation between up to 500 stakeholders. But I suppose the other reason, and something I'm particularly proud of, is the fact that out of those organizations, 80 of them were consumer organizations the biggest representation of consumer organisations in any international standard. And I think what the development process for ISO 26000 demonstrates is the importance of all those different stakeholders, government, industry, NGOs, labour and consumers, that, that it's really important to bring all of those together to create that global consensus. And because of that really strong consumer voice in the development of ISO 26000. It has placed responding to the needs of consumers front and centre of what it means to be a socially responsible organisation. So for me, it has to be ISO 26000. That's my favourite standard. We pick up our payment story with Tim Yates. Tim has been involved in work related to buildings and structures for more than 40 years. He serves on a number of CERN and BSI standards committees, including B507 for paving units and curbs. He is currently head of the European unit 
that provides specialist technical support on the construction products regulation to the UK government and the European Commission. And he's also technical director at the BRE Group, responsible for the management of projects relating to heritage, stone and other traditional building materials. Now, if Richard brought us the latest developments of the standard BS 7533-101, with Tim, we take a step back into the history of the standard. We hear from Tim about the challenges involved in reaching consensus and how those challenges were overcome, including his own role in helping to kickstart a standards-making process that had come to a complete halt. And also, his thoughts on some of the positive impacts that lockdown and the subsequent move to online working has had on the standards development process. But we start with Tim telling us about his own standards journey. Um, it's been a very long journey. I think we uh, <clears throat> we were part of um, uh, the government when I first went to building research uh, back in the 80s. And we provided technical support on behalf of the government to a lot of standards, both uh, British and international. And after I'd been at BRE a few years, uh, somebody said, could you just pop along to a couple of meetings to um, to finish off some European standards? So I actually started with um, with SEN European standards, uh, which gave me a place on a British Standards Mirror Committee. And that was back in 1992. So uh, uh, coming up for a long period, I think I may have had a very early meeting even in 1991. So I started very much on SEN and on test methods was my area. And after I'd done that for two or three years, I'd obviously either done something wrong or something right uh, and got asked to uh, to join uh, and as convener of another SEN committee uh, and to take that on. And that was actually linked to this work in that it was the European standard for the surfacing materials, the concrete, clay and stone that forms the top layer in our pavements and our roadways that this standard is very much about. Uh, and I've continued with that. It did turn out to be slightly more than two or three meetings. Um, it's now kind of passed into two or three hundred meetings. Uh, but I've continued. Uh, and I guess where where I am uh, I now, I chair um, two BSI committees, uh, one on policy and one on uh, uh, heritage. <clears throat> and um, also very much uh, just taken on a... Uh, chairmanship of the European Standards one, so I'm I'm continuing, not uh, intending to continue forever, but um, been a long journey, very interesting, met a lot of great people across uh, Europe, and uh, become more and more involved, I guess, in BSI standards and writing them probably over the last twenty years, um, maybe not quite as long as some of the European ones. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. Actually, I just want to before before you move on, I just wanted to ask you there, um, you know, with your sort of twenty plus years as a as a standards maker, what what difference has that made to your career? What influence has it had? Um, uh, it's taken me on quite a long journey, actually, because having worked uh, and continued to work in the standards, uh, it took me in two directions. One, I became involved with the Stone Federation, which is the trade association of the stone industry in Great Britain, uh, and became president of that, which was uh, a great honour. So uh, working with all aspects of, of the, the industry from producers, sellers, uh, installers. Uh, and it also took me into European work, into European regulations. And, and I still work, e- even after Brexit, I still work for the commission, uh, providing technical support related to construction products. And at the Commission, I'm seen as quite an oddity in that uh, I work on regulations and for them, but I've also experienced in writing standards and uh, and in the industry as working with SMEs. So, um, so that kind of initial thing, would you like to go along to in two or three meetings, has taken me some, some very interesting places and um, given me a, a very wide... Uh, understanding of the whole process what where is the standard going to go what is it going to do what's its origin how does it relate to regulations to health and safety Um, uh, and how does that then impinge on people in their everyday lives Um, particularly perhaps when they get the wrong materials or or the wrong standards used Uh, and I guess the the ultimate it takes me into expert work giving giving evidence uh, usually in 
civil cases, but occasionally in criminal cases, uh, to do with standards and, and having that background in writing them and working with people who write them uh, gives you a, a good understanding of what was the intent of that standard when it was written what what did people think it was going to mean and going to do and how does that then influence um, when something's gone wrong now it sounds to me then you've had a, a fantastically positive experience of uh, of standards making you know you 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 were dragged into those those couple of meetings and it's become a 20 year it's become 20 years of part of your career i just wonder if you were to put yourself in the position of a maybe a young engineer or or, or any any professional uh, background really you're 20 21 years old and you've been invited to go along to a particular meeting what would you say to that person um i would say take the opportunity don't be daunted by the old people who are there, um, who, who, like me now, say we've been here for 30 years and we've seen it all and uh, it's all changed. Um, don't be daunted. Don't be afraid to ask if you don't know. Um, and I learned that very early on. You, you can't bluff your way through with these people who really, really do know their stuff. They, they, they live and die their, their products and their, uh, and their technical knowledge. And, um, it's it's something it was it was quite easy for me because we were actually paid by government to, to provide representation at that time back in the uh, in the 90s much harder if you come from an industry side for for people to see well what is the value and it, and it is i know it's a concern for our committees and, and for bsi more generally and across europe i, I hear the same and um, we've all grown old and we need a new generation to come uh, and to learn and to take that that on and and to understand that that standards are important they they ultimately they save lives and, and they create sustainable solutions and uh, um, it really is an important aspect of, of the work um, but if if invited um, take the opportunity and and go for it fantastic advice there uh, tim now We've asked. I've asked you on to talk about a particular standard, BS seven seven five three dash one hundred one. I'd just like you to sort of take us inside the process for this. I'm, I'm interested about the development of this standard. Sort of take us back in time a bit. You know, what were the drivers for the for the review of this standard? You know, paint paint the picture for us. So I I think looking back that so the standards seven five double three started as just one or two parts um, about 20 years ago, it looks like, maybe a little bit more, 25 years ago. Uh, and over time, people said, oh, it would be good if we had a standard that covered the design of uh, a heavily traffic pavement or uh, a pavement created out of slabs or maybe out of blocks or maybe something for the reinstatement. Or, uh, and over time, it, it evolved all the way till, until there were 13 parts to it. Uh, and I think some seven or eight years ago that the end users, so that's the highways engineers, the landscapers, um, hard landscape designers, um, transport uh, providers, so Transport for London and people like that, found this just too confusing. There were 13 parts. They covered all of the design and all of the installation of a whole range of materials, but they never knew from one day to the next which one they need to be picking up. And uh, I think that the, kind of the message eventually got back uh, to, to those involved, particularly on the material side, that this isn't working. Uh, um, in fact, they, they were really quite blunt about it, I think. They, they just said it was hopeless, that they couldn't make any sense out of all these parts. Uh, do you go to part one or part six, and do you go to then part eight or part nine? Um, and they just wanted a solution which was two parts. They wanted uh, one part which covered all the design and one that covered all of the installation. They didn't mind. They, they worked across a range of materials, um, a range of traffic categories, a range of end uses. Um, they just wanted some really nice, clear guidance. Um, and I think everyone said, well, yes, that'll be straightforward. We'll, we'll do that. Um, but it proved to be uh, a bit more challenging than that. And can you tell us about those about those specific challenges? I mean, obviously, at the heart of standards, it's about developing consensus and uh, uh, avoiding disagreement. 
about uh, about what needs to be done. So take us inside and identify for us some of those specific challenges for, for developing that consensus for this particular standard. Having given some some thought to, to the question, it was uh, um, it's interesting. If I if I go back to to the SEN product standards where, where I started out, um, uh, and the test methods, um, if I'm writing a product standard for a clay paver, so that's one of our products, all of the people involved in writing it produce clay pavers. They might be importers, they might sell them, but they're all they're all kind of focused on one product, and that's their um, when they wake up in the morning, they want to talk about clay pavers. And when they go to bed at night, they probably dream of clay pavers. And uh, uh, and the same for other ones, whether it was concrete or, or, or stone. But it does make it quite straightforward. I, I have a product. I'm, I've got a set of uh, international regulations and requirements which could apply to it. And I write a standard around that. Uh, if I then move on and say, well, I'm going to do the installation of it, the design and installation of it. If it's a single product, and I've had a lot of involvement in um, natural stone cladding and lining for, for the exteriors and buildings, again, I'm, I'm quite focused. I've got one product, one product sector, um, and I'm going to, I might install it in different ways, but we're all generally going in the same direction. Then suddenly you come to 7533, and I've got four major product groups involved. So I've got the natural stone, I've got the clay industry, I've got the concrete industry, and I've got the mortar industry, which I think people have perhaps overlooked that, that in making uh, roadways, pavements, patios, whatever it is, work, that, that the bits that go with it, that hold it together or hold it apart, are really important. Uh, and I think that was the challenge for this this product was that um, we had four uh, product kind of sectors uh, as well as the the end users the engineers um, each of whom were, were hugely passionate about their their area and, and rightly committed to promoting it and making it best practice for it uh, and doing it in the right way um, but I think that was the challenge was was not bringing for producers of stone to consensus, but bringing many, many different producers and suppliers from four very different and almost and often competing product areas. Sometimes it will be a case it might be clay, it, it might be uh, stone, it might be co concrete, and sometimes they will will be competing. And all of them quite rightly want to do their best for their industry. So it, it's pulling that those groups together. I think is where the real challenge lay with this standard. So with this, these particular groups, have got broadly four, four groups all coming at it from their different perspectives, obviously passionate about pavements in their, in their own way. How long has that process taken then from, we're going to review the standard, and although the standard hasn't been published yet, we're kind of a near publication. Uh, tell us about how, how long has that process taken to develop that consensus? So looking back, it's, it seems to have started about eight or nine years ago. And after four years of work um, there was uh, there was a draft of part 101 uh, there was even a draft of part 102 uh, but there was no consensus there was just no agreement and it just it just stopped basically I, I think people uh, decided it was it was too difficult we, we'll just stop on this um, and maybe we'll just have to carry on as we are but the end users, so back to our highways engineers and uh, to Richard, who I know you is involved in um, in, in recording as well. It's uh, people at TFL, and particularly people at TFL at the time, said, "No, you have got to sort it. <laughs> we want to use these products. It's really important for us, but we need the design and installation guidance." And so four years ago, four and a bit years ago, I was asked, would I take it on as, as uh, to lead a, what was just a working group then and eventually became the panel. And I think I was asked because most people knew me because I'd been around a long time. Um, they also knew, although I was president of the Stone Federation at the time, that, that I did understand the other product group because I'd worked with them uh, across Europe and, and on many other areas. 
and uh, and so it was restarted. Um, and interesting, we we started with quite a small group um, to really see. I think it was just six of us at the first meeting, but with representatives from each of the four product groups. Um, do we have a chance of, of actually reaching consensus? And interestingly, at almost every meeting that we held, um, I started with the question, is there anything fundamental that is going to stop us reaching the end? Um, and it was always people would always think and say, no, there isn't. Uh, and then we would discuss something for six hours that <laughs> seemed fairly fundamental. But that, that was, I think that was where it, it kind of restarted. Um, and how we began to to move forward things. So you needed that sort of you needed someone to say, "Come on, we've got we need to get this sorted because there's there's a user need." So you had a yeah. user need there where you yeah. so someone said, "Look, we really need to resolve this." I just wonder, um, obviously, given your given your role as a standards making your experience, but I just wonder what you learned during that process. You know, what we were, were you thinking? Well, this is the first time this has happened to this extent, and and how did you approach that problem? Um, I knew when I took it on that it was a problem. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I kind of perhaps took on board exactly how um, entrenched some of the positions were, uh, and, and that uh, yeah, it was it was it was it was quite difficult. But I did know all of the people involved, and had known quite a few of them for for many years. Um, and had worked with them on on other projects, um, maybe not all together, but but at various different times. Um, and we just kind of started to to explore and see if we would be able to move forward. Um, but it wasn't an easy process. So I I think I was there as a combination of facilitator, a peacemaker, um, the person who uh, occasionally had to bang the table to. To, to say, well, we need to move forward, and people would are very good at looking back, often um, back to their their positions. But um, but the the group got bigger as more people were were, were drawn in, so more end users um, who were absolutely key: the, the the landscapers, the hard landscapers, the road builders, the highways engineers, absolutely key because they would look through a draft and say, this is better than before, but it's still not good enough for what we want uh, and I think the product uh, producers and suppliers listen to those people because in the end if if the end user wouldn't buy their products in any form with any of the products they would go for for a completely different solution um, that wasn't going to do anything and if they needed something in a particular way then then that was that was a good driver for it. So I'm interested what you say there. You had that sort of core group, and as maybe the sort of wider community realised, well, there's momentum here. There's there's going to be a solution. Then it then it encouraged them to get involved. Is that is that how you felt it happened? Um, I think some got involved because uh, they just felt they needed to be there in case <laughs> in case something went wrong. Um, and, and some people had very little to to actually say in the meetings, but. Uh, which was quite interesting, but they would come back afterwards and say, we didn't agree with this, or we think this would be better, or could you look at this, or here's some background. So so they were almost silent partners, but within the process contributing to it. And uh, eventually, so we had, there were various things. We, we tried to put as much common material into the, the standard as possible so so that it didn't cover the design of foundations for stone and for clay and for concrete separately, they were in together. So at one time we pushed it all together and people said, no, that's too far. So we pulled various bits apart and, and had uh, a much less unified approach. And people said, no, that's not, <laughs> that's, that's going too far the other way. And, and just came down to a point where, where we could move forward together on some bits and, and keep other bits apart. Uh, but I'm not quite sure what happened. It was interesting because although a lot of the process took place during lockdown, so a lot of the meetings and then the final drafts and everything and all the comments resolution were all done uh, virtually online, uh, I think it gave a, a certain momentum. People people could 
could say, oh, we'll meet for two hours. It's if you were going to meet face to face, it would take you a whole day. But people would say, we'll meet. Uh, and we got some real momentum. And instead of something perhaps taking three months, somebody saying, I've drafted this, and then we look at it and you meet three months later and uh, and people say they don't like it. It was a week later. That, that's interesting. And, and so you, you said you started sort of four, four years ago on this particular, really sort of the, yeah. started proper four years ago, but things have accelerated during lockdown because of the online process. I, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about that in a second, but before I do, give us a sense of how many, how many sort of drafts do you go through? So sort of from four years ago into the final standard, how many drafts has it gone through? <laughs> um, uh, um, no real feel on that one. Maybe two or twenty. And is that is 20. that is that unusual for for a stand in your experience as a standards maker? Is, is twenty a high number? Um, I would have said yes. So I just wonder. I then, think we, it reflects this kind of bringing everything. Well, what should we cover and how should we cover it, and then bringing it all together, and then kind of pulling it yeah. apart again, and then edging it back to towards being together. Um, yeah, I would think maybe 20, 20 yeah. not complete rewrites, but mm-hmm. but pretty big, big differences. Now, obviously, the entire standards world has moved online during during the pandemic. So pretty much for eight for eighteen months now. And I was fascinated what you said there about the being online allowed you, well, allowed the process to be slightly more agile, and you could have meetings arranged a bit more quickly. I also wonder whether. Did it allow people to get involved probably in a way they wouldn't have done, sort of a wider community of interest, you know, a wider group of stakeholders was able to comment on those drafts because the process had gone online? Um, I would say for sure, yeah. So so some of the the more silent partners on the committee would have have struggled to, to justify coming for a whole travelling to 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 London for a meeting, although we did meet in other places. We met in in Leicester and um, and at BRE and various other locations. To but but people would always be thinking, oh, "I've got to go. I, I need to get back on the motorway. I need to drive back." Um, and I think it did. It's you would you would get more people and more involvement, um, and and easier for for. So, so one of the one of the big people involved is based in Germany, uh, but he could then attend every meeting <laughs> because it was no more difficult for him to to join than anyone else. And um, and you got people from uh, based out in Northern Ireland and things would would all be able to to join very easily. And you could also have sub meetings. So three people would say, "Well, we will meet online and, and discuss this one paragraph." and sort it out and or somebody would would write an annex and those involved would would just meet to answer particular questions so a lot more momentum a, a lot easier to keep going a lot harder to control occasionally i did tell them that the real problem is you can't bang the table when you're on a virtual meeting <laughs> this, this is true. I, I just wonder. I just wonder, given your, your sort of twenty thirty year experience, I just wonder what you know. Have you did you enjoy the experience more, or was that, well, did it make it more? I won't say enjoyable, but more more manageable, but more productive over the last eighteen months because because of the situation we were all facing. Um, I would definitely say it made it more productive because we spent two and a half years getting something that that looked like consensus that we might be able to move forward from. And then it became, uh, um, the business plan was accepted at BSI. It became a uh, a, a proper work item, Was uh, had a content developer allocated. And uh, we, we had various content developers from BSI. I must say, they have all been astonishingly good. We would never have got near to the end without their patience and knowledge. Um, to, to move us forward, but but then we set a timetable which people said was too optimistic of, of basically uh, twenty months to, to complete a, a year to have a, a draft and then eight months to to uh, to resolve any comments. Um, and I don't think we could have done that if we hadn't met online. So so strangely, uh, having to meet online did did give it a lot more momentum. And I think because we had the momentum, 
we reached a point probably six months ago when we, we started into the comments resolution um, where there was quite a sudden change that the people could see an end and, and that they weren't looking back and saying, well, this is how it is. This is how it's always been. They could see we were going to have a new draft and it was going to be published on the 27th of August, I think it is. <laughs> and, um, and, and we could look forward. So instead of looking back, we would look forward and say, what do we need to do in order to, to get this bit resolved to the next stage? And suddenly it was a really positive attitude that the desire was to complete um, still to still to defend your, your product groups and to do the best and to get the best practice and not to disadvantage your product, which is absolutely right. We shouldn't shouldn't do that. But but seeing that we could move forward and we could reach that endpoint. Um, and in the last the kind of very last drafts uh, as it was just coming to an end, you, you could see people, um, we were down to some, where you'd, you'd said fundamental, we, we won't be able to do this. Now they were looking at, at details, they were comparing two tables, say, well, these don't say quite the same thing, and really down to detail to make it the best possible standard that it could be. I'm, I'm sure it will still have one or two holes in it because it's very complicated. It's a, it's a hundred pages of uh, very technical information, but, but, but I suppose, having, but, having but, that but, momentum, we got going and people carried on. And I suppose because, I mean, like, like any standard, it, it's reviewed every two to five years. So there's always a chance, there will always be opportunities to, to make improvements. But I suppose you've now sort of won, a, won over the participants in that sense and developed that consensus and a way of working. So the chance then to make those those improvements is there. I just wonder, Tim, um, in terms of the, you know, this standards, the area of standards in which you work, do you think the way you've done this, you managed to create that consensus and resolve those challenges, resolve those challenges between sort of key industry players going online? You know, what impact will this have for future standards making in your area? Um, I can't. I mean, people, it's nice to beat. It's nice to beat face to face. But um, I. I think that will become the exception, and I think people can. They're already talking. We're already planning part one hundred and two, which is the the installation part, and I can't see any reason not to do much of it online, um, because you can. If somebody can give a day, but they're going to spend three hours driving there and three hours driving back and three hours in the meeting, if you can ask them to give seven hours online, you get two or three times as much work done you have to have breaks and have to run away and um to a quiet place when it all gets very frustrating <laughs> but but I, I think it will change it and i would hope it might shorten the process because if you can complete a standard in two to three years instead of 10 years that's got to be good got to be good for the industry so, Tim, if we were to sort of circle back to, to the, to the stand, standard itself, I'm interested in sort of, if you were to sort of point at it, what do you think was the key determining factor here to really sort of kickstart the consensus development process? You know, you've talked about, you know, sort of it really started again sort of four years ago. You know, at the, at the heart, what was the, the heart of the issue here? What, what sort of kickstarted the process again? Um, I think it was very much, it was the, as we... To the, the desire of the end users, the, the landscape architects, the uh, road builders, transport people, that they uh, they needed the standard. And they were willing not only to, to kind of say we need a standard, but to join the working group and then the panel, the drafting panel, uh, and maintain that contribution right through. So they didn't just say we need a standard, go away and write it for us. They joined in and they were at every meeting and they were not uh, overwhelmed to say, this is not right. Um, uh, this doesn't work for us. This, this, we, we can't follow this. And at every stage, they were, they were um, critical friends, really. They were very positive. They wanted the standard. They wanted to see it done. But they were willing to, to challenge and to contribute. And once people could see that, uh, that this was happening, then there were definite questions which needed to be resolved. People grew to understand each other and, and where they were they were coming from, and their uh, 
what they needed to hang on to, what was important for their products and their industry to, to make it successful. But they could see, well, here's a question related to uh, the surface course of the, uh, of the, 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 the design the end user needs this. How can we how can we do this, and how can we do it for all of the products so that we all have an equal chance to go forward? Um, so I guess it the, the challenges from the end users broke down the questions into into manageable uh, sub questions, so that you could resolve them, get consensus on one one small question, and then if you get consensus on ten small questions, then suddenly you've solved and got consensus on a big question. Uh, and if you go on chipping away for long enough, you uh, you get consensus from, from everyone overall. And, um, and having that momentum of being able to meet quite often online meant that people could actually see they were progressing, even if it was in quite small increments, that they could see they were moving forward. Our thanks to Richard Scrivener, Tim Yates and BSI's Gavin Jones for their contributions to this episode. To find out more about how you can help shape the world through standards, including pavements, go to bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production. 